All content published by Your Brain on Science is solely the opinions of the authors and does not reflect the opinions of any parties affiliated with them or any additional third parties. listeners to your brain on science it's your girl elena i hope everyone is having a fabulous summer and keeping it real i haven't done a solo episode in a while so yeah you just get me today so i'm in what i'm calling diso mode um which just means that i am chipping away at writing my dissertation that is due in november So I'm taking various forms of encouragement, including but not limited to kind words, mindless TV recommendations, and a lot of milkshakes. Uh, So if you want to buy me a chocolate milkshake, you can Venmo me or donate to our podcast. (laughs) So let's get into it, right? Uh, For the month of August, I'm going to be talking about drug use, substance use disorders, and how psychedelics are being investigated as a tool to help folks stop their cycle of addiction. Um, so while obviously not everyone that uses substances has, uh, substance use disorder issues or problematic use, and we're going to talk more about that, uh, psychedelics are being used as a treatment for those who are seeking it. So today I'm going to talk about abuse liability and briefly cover the non-addictive nature of psychedelics to kind of set the foundation for the next two episodes. So I'll start off by defining abuse liability as the National Institute of Health and Drug Enforcement Agency define it, which is not how I define it. But these entities, um, their definitions basically means that any non-prescribed, non-medical use of a psychoactive compound is considered drug abuse. This includes recreational, self-medicating, or even ceremonial use of compounds. And while some ceremonial use of psychedelics is protected by law, Um, You have to be a part of a specific church or uh, organization to be able to use these in that way. And it's important to note before we get started that while psychedelics may not have all the same characteristics as other drugs, there are mental changes that can cause someone to want to continue use of psychedelics, which can become problematic. So while they might not have the same tolerance withdrawal um, or the same like physical cravings that other drugs um, have, they still can have problematic use depending on the person. Uh, So just important to note there. So I gave you the NIH definition, right? Uh, But in the last five years, folks have started leaning away from this strict definition and thinking of drug use as a spectrum. And so even the National Institute of Drug Abuse is working on changing their name. So changing the A from abuse to something else um, to reflect kind of this change in how we are understanding drug use. Because several people use drugs unproblematically, right? Like, hello, alcohol, caffeine, tobacco. I'm literally drinking a glass of wine right now. Um, That doesn't mean I have substance use issues. It's a Saturday. I'm recording my podcast. I'm vibing. Um, And we can stick with alcohol as as a good example here. So the use of substances, right, can go from casual use with positive effects, so disinhibition, um, feeling more comfortable in social situations, relaxation, some euphoria. Um, Those are all considered positive effects of, of alcohol. 
Um, but once, you know, our casual use or our social use uh, kind of changes into becoming maybe binge use. So now you're drinking several drinks in a short period of time with somewhat negative consequences. So perhaps you're impaired driving, uh, you have potential spurts of violence, uh, physiological responses like a hangover. Um, that could be seen as, you know, like, okay, maybe I need to calm down. I feel like everyone maybe has experienced that a day where they're super hungover and they're like, I'm never drinking again. Um, so that's, you know, another shift in the spectrum. And then you can shift to or escalate to problematic use. So now maybe a person is drinking so much that they start to lose focus on their responsibilities. Maybe they hurt themselves or others either on accident or on purpose physically or through actions related to alcohol. Or maybe they experience a really severe withdrawal following prolonged use, uh, which is common with alcohol common with medications like opioids, benzodiazepines, and even SSRIs. Um, interestingly, the alcohol withdrawal is one of the only withdrawals that you can die from um, due to uh, severe uh, changes in the brain. It can cause uh, seizures and other things as well. And then you have um, on the complete opposite end of the spectrum from the general recreational use is where abuse is. So substance use disorder, um, drug abuse. And this is uh, where basically prolonged use of a substance by someone who displays risk factors or has predisposition to develop a substance use disorder can almost um, take over their own life with their drug use, where everything revolves around this drug. So now this person is no longer having a drink with dinner or to take the edge off after a long day of work or to hang out with their friends, they now cannot function without drinking daily um, and their brain chemistry is altered due to their prolonged use. All drugs, alcohol, nicotine, opioids, cocaine, amphetamines, ketamine, cannabis, and yes, psychedelics, produce changes in the brain. You've heard us talk about plasticity a lot. Um, so, you know, we've talked about psychedelic-induced plasticity. We've, I think, talked a little bit about, like, cocaine-induced plasticity as an example. Um, so everything, even non-drugs, produce plasticity. But some drugs produce uh, what would be deemed as a negative form of plasticity, where the brain is adapting in a way that becomes problematic. So drug use every day, you know, produces uh, changes in dopamine, making your brain super happy. You get uh, a dopamine influx, making you feel euphoric, making the rewarding um, feel-good part of the drug use wire to parts of your brain that are involved in, you know, memory and motivation and cognition and mood. And so um, essentially, this decreases in dopamine in the reward center of your brain causes the tone of neurotransmitters in these neurons to change. So then it makes it for harder for other signals to come in that influence craving of these drugs and the reward and behaviors that come after drug use. And so one interesting thing about psychedelics is their rapid tolerance. So drugs like opioids, for example, you take them for pain or you take them for fun and you build a tolerance over time. So that's where you need a bigger dose to produce some of the same desired effects as when you started. And these effects, um, like I mentioned, can be both in like pain relieving tolerance or uh, tolerance to euphoric or like the relaxation effects of drugs. So What's cool is that psychedelics like LSD or psilocybin, when they are taken at recreational doses to cause, you know, hallucinations, they have rapid tolerance. And this means that if someone tried to take a tab of acid with the same dose every single day, it wouldn't work the same way or at all. 
And the person might need double the amount of LSD to produce an effect, which for a lot of users defeats the purpose or is a waste of the drug that might be hard to find. So this rapid tolerance is also known as tachyphylaxis, but we're just going to call it rapid tolerance here because tachyphylaxis, like, can you even spell that? I barely can. So this tolerance can last up to a few days and then can kind of reset. It prevents people from using psychedelics at moderate doses regularly. And honestly, the use of psychedelics is pretty sporadic for the average user. Anyways, um, people use them recreationally at music festivals, at parties, maybe by themselves in nature or for meditation purposes. But usually people aren't trying to dose up every day anyways. Even further, for those who choose to use them more frequently, the time that psychedelic use peaks is around young adulthood and typically decreases over time to almost never using in late adulthood um, or, you know, in a geriatric uh, age group. Smaller doses with psychedelics is a little bit different. You know, you can um, still build up that tolerance to smaller doses, but it might return to normal faster. Or you might, depending on the dose, have a tolerance to certain aspects of the psychedelic experience, but not others. Um, but, you know, there's been little to no studies really looking at rapid tolerance of psychedelics in humans. Um, my lab has a paper um, looking at tolerance and cross-tolerance of psychedelics um, using head twitch response um, and some binding and some different brain mechanisms. But most clinical studies only have one or two doses that are given at least a week apart. And studies looking at mul multiple dosing paradigms usually use microdoses or smaller doses or they just have no focus on whether or not there's a tolerance building and what this means for the psychedelic experience. Psychedelics also don't typically produce withdrawal symptoms following use, or at least it hasn't been studied intensely. Um, one thing about like the classic psychs is that instead of withdrawal, um, there's something kind of called this afterglow period. And this is um, with classic psychedelics also has been noted with ketamine and MDMA. But um, so they have this afterglow, which is thought to basically be the sustained increase in mood, this heightened perception and positive feelings post psychedelic trip. This is after the drugs have left your system um, and it's been reported to last 24 hours, even up to a week to multiple weeks after the psychedelic experience, depending on the person. And this um, time period of this afterglow is kind of thought to be where true integration might uh, be best for the clinical applications of psychedelics. So now, you know, I kind of talked about some of these um, different processes that psychedelics have that make them unique compared to other drugs that are used and um, why they might, you know, be maybe anti-addictive or non-addictive, um, right? Because we can't use them as much as, you know, people would use opioids or alcohol. We have um, this huge tolerance that's built up that's a little bit different. Um, and this experience, not to mention, lasts like 12 hours in the case of LSD. So, you know, most people aren't <laughs> going to gear up for a 12-hour trip um, every single day, right? This isn't something that, you know, while it does, it's fun, it feels good, um, you have euphoria, you have, you know, changes in self and perception and sensory processes. This isn't something that um, some people want to experience every day. A lot of people take psychedelics and maybe never want to experience it again. Uh, so it's very dependent on the person and the individual, just like other drugs. But uh, the mechanisms are just a little bit different, right? So another unique reason why psychedelics um, are different than other drugs is because they're kind of thought to have a built-in anti-addictive mechanism. This is something that uh, people are continuing to research and get into because um, there's just not that much work being done. Psychedelics were vilified for such a long time that we don't really 
know about what they're actually doing um, in terms of the rewarding aspects of uh, drugs, of their... We don't really know what they're doing from a rewarding aspect. We don't really know, you know, are they actually um, modulating other drugs of abuse, like other neurotransmitter systems, but we know a little bit. And I'm excited for the field to kind of move forward in this. And this is my field that I'm in right now. So um, if you listened to us before, you know the primary mechanism of psychedelics is the activation of a serotonin 2A receptor in the frontal cortex. And now this has been shown to be involved in the psychedelic experience. This is something, you know, that is common knowledge at this point. So the serotonin 2A receptor is most abundantly expressed in the frontal cortex. So this is the brain region that, you know, is involved in mood, cognition, um, memory processing, a lot of important stuff, right? Um, Our higher functioning area. And so while the serotonin 2A receptors are mostly there, they are in other brain regions as well. Um, serotonergic neurons, so neurons that release serotonin, are actually most densely found in this RAF nuclei in the brainstem. So um, from here is where serotonin is mainly released. And through this release here, serotonin is basically the great modulator of brain activity. So uh, you have serotonin receptors on these serotonin neurons that are called autoreceptors. And when those are activated, they essentially do a feedback loop in where if there's too much serotonin in the system that binds these autoreceptors that reduce serotonin release from the dorsal RAF. Um, but that's different than the activation of the serotonin 2A receptor on the cortex. Whereas if you activate serotonin 2A receptors on the cortex, you're going to produce an influx of glutamate signaling, which is excitatory and will excite a bunch of stuff in the brain. And so that's why um, it's important to remember that serotonin is a great modulator, but when we take psychedelics, we're hijacking the normal system that's used to modulate our everyday behaviors. And that's why we get these crazy hallucinations, these changes in our sensory um, processing and our perception, and maybe in some of the choices that we would make. But getting back to how psychedelics can be used to modulate behaviors related to drug abuse. Well, um, I mentioned that, you know, they're modulating dopamine. So we have this dopaminergic tone that when hijacked by um, prolonged drug use produces an overhaul of dopamine. And that's producing all these rewarding effects um, in the brain. But it's been suggested that serotonin can come in and pretty much mess with this uh, tone, right? And so there's another receptor I hope you're following. I'll draw a diagram. Uh, the 5-HT2C receptor, the serotonin 2C receptor, which is located on a lot of inhibitory neurons in the areas associated with drug reward. And so when these receptors are activated, they actually decrease dopamine signaling through, you know, inhibiting these um dopamine releases in these brain regions. And that reduces drug seeking and taking behaviors in animals. Some psychedelics more selectively activate the serotonin 2C receptor than the 2A receptor, but research is still ongoing on how these drugs can differentially activate receptors to produce these anti-addictive outcomes. A lot of research has mainly focused on just administering these drugs in the system. So um, there's like this thing that you can do called microdialysis, or you can do a specific injection into a brain region, and it allows you to measure neurotransmitter release following... um, drug administration in a specific brain region. 
but that's not how our bodies work. So um, a lot of research right now is going into assessing systemic or, you know, just a general injection somewhere in the body to get into the bloodstream and go through uh, metabolism and how that's actually affecting the brain regions of interest. Now, what's interesting and why we think that psychedelics um, are potentially modulating this dopamine system is not only have we shown that, you know, by this microdialysis experiments, but psychedelics have never been able to reliably produce self-administration in different models. So in non-human primates, right, in non-human primates, um, these animals have not self-administered um, phenethylamine psychedelics like DOI or DOM reliably. Um, they haven't been able to self-administer LSD reliably. While some do self-administer LSD, it's very sporadic. It's not like prolonged. Um, and every animal seems to be different. In mice and rats, um, it has not been um, reliably reproduced that they also self-administer these compounds. Um, they do lever press for uh, psychedelics, but that's in a drug discrimination assay, which basically you train the mice on um, lever pressing for LSD, right? So you're giving them LSD. They're not taking it themselves. And then you train them on a lever um, that is what they press when they're on LSD. And then you give them a different drug and see if they lever press that same lever um, to see if like psilocybin is similar to LSD. But that's not really them taking the drug themselves. It's just them indicating that they know that they're on a drug that's similar to the one that you trained them on. And this is what the DEA uses to schedule drugs um, as one of their main assays of drug abuse. But you have to think back to their definition. If they're if you're comparing a drug to a drug that they think is a drug of abuse, then that drug's going to be a drug of abuse, even if the mice won't self-administer it. So who knows? We're hopefully going to change that soon. Uh, there's a interesting model. It's a cool model called intracranial self-stimulation. And this is basically where rats are able to lever press for electrical stimulation in areas related to the rewarding effects of drugs. So when you administer um, cocaine or opioids or amphetamines, these animals will press for this electrical stimulation, facilitating a rewarding effect. So the uh, drugs make them like the rewarding thing more. And then when you give psychedelics to these uh, animals, they don't press the lever at all, suggesting that psychedelics are either so overwhelming in their acute effects that the animals are just, just aren't moving around, um, they don't have the motivation to lever press, or that psychedelics are depressing behavior associated with drug rewards. So the animals just don't care anymore about receiving that stimulation. And this is an ongoing line of research as well. And if you're interested in reading more about that, uh, you can check out a paper um, by myself and Dr. Harrison Elder on ICSS and psychedelics. Further, psychedelics have uh, been shown to decrease alcohol drinking in rodent models and in humans. Uh, so this has been sustained for several days and weeks post-administration in both animal models and human models. Um, interestingly, very little research has been done using psychedelics for treatment of substance use disorders, specifically things like opioids. Um, there's a couple interesting papers on like serotonin modulation of cocaine um, behaviors, and I think there's a paper on ketamine and um, methamphetamine behaviors, but there's not really that much going on except for the alcohol research. So um, this is something, you know, that's been vilified, like I mentioned, um, but now it's becoming a funded research venture. 
So it's really exciting. We're finally admitting that psychedelics aren't more dangerous than any other drug that can be used. You know, it's just not the case. So I'm kind of going to close this short cast with the two current hypotheses in the field about why psychedelics may be helpful for treating substance use disorders. So the first being that the experience following psychedelics helps people shift their self-identity and form new beliefs and habits. So um, I talk a lot about this with Dr. Uh, Nishay Devineau on the podcast about uh, self-identity and ego dissolution. So if you're really interested in learning more about that, please check out that episode. Um, the other hypothesis is that uh, psychedelics serotonergic modulation, uh, or the other hypothesis is that psychedelics activate these serotonin systems that modulate dopaminergic systems. So this is kind of that neuroscience perspective where the other one is kind of that subjective perspective, but it's important to have both. And so uh, the neuroscience perspective is kind of that something is happening that resets this dopaminergic tone uh, either through the serotonin 2C perhaps, or through these projections from the frontal cortex into these brain regions associated with reward. And this would allow for behavioral shifts. Honestly, maybe it's both. Maybe um, the serotonin is resetting this dopaminergic tone and this experience is allowing for this shift of beliefs and habits. You know, who knows? Or maybe it's neither. Maybe we'll find out that we just don't know anything. <laughs> Hopefully not, because my dissertation is about this. Um, but yeah, the research is ongoing and I really hope that I was able to kind of just break a couple things down for you guys, give you a brief overview and as always, if you have any questions or comments, praises, hate, please engage with us on our website, on our Twitter, on our Instagram. Uh, you can find it all at psychedelicbrainscience.com. Share this episode with your family and your friends. And please tune in next week for my conversation with Dr. Albert Garcia Ramo from Johns Hopkins as we discuss some of why psychedelics might be helpful for substance use disorders and his perspective as a clinical researcher. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.